Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we move into the time of God, sharing of God's word. We're in the Beatitudes and we've looked at the first three a week, uh, two weeks ago before Easter and today we'll be concentrating on verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5 in Matthew. The PBS series Civilizations surveys the role of art, how the role of art plays a vital role in ancient civilizations. Near the end of episode one, viewers are taken to the Mayan city of Calakmal in Mexico. The city was once one of the most influential metropolitan areas in their vast empire. Entombed beneath a canopy of trees rest the remains of more than 6,500 buildings. The tallest is a massive, ornately decorated temple which rises more than 15 stories into the air. Standing at the foot of this massive ziggurat, abandoned for more than 1,000 years, an unnamed archaeologist explains... Ultimately, all civilizations want exactly what they can't have, conquest of time. So they build bigger and higher and grander, and if they could build their way out of mortality, they would. But it never works. There always comes a moment when the most populous of cities, with their markets and temples and palaces, are simply abandoned. And that most unrelenting leveler of all, Mother Nature, closes in, covering the places with desert sand or strangling it with vegetation. And then civilization dies the death of deaths, invisibility. That's the way of all earthly kingdoms. Just go down the list. The Mayan the Aztec, the Inca, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, the Roman, the Ottoman. And if the Lord tarries, future archaeologists will be hacking away vegetation from the Empire State Building. But there is one kingdom that will never end, that we're told in Scripture over and over and over again. It will never end, and that is God's kingdom. And the beginning of Jesus' ministry, back in chapter 4, if you remember, he begins to proclaim this everlasting kingdom is coming, right? It's being born. Three weeks ago, we began to look at this new kingdom, and we saw that it had a new creed to it. In verse 17 of chapter 4, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The creed of this new kingdom is repentance. The only way to enter into this new kingdom is on your knees. This new kingdom also has a specific call, a new call, if you will. Just two verses later in chapter 4, in verse 19, Jesus says, follow me. You remember he's looking at these fishermen and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. 
We are called by our master to follow him. That's the call of the new kingdom, even up to and including our own personal via dolorosis. And then here in the Beatitudes, Jesus moves in and begins to describe the citizens of heaven. What he's doing in the Beatitudes is he's describing the citizenry of heaven. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Two weeks ago, we began looking at the first three of these descriptions of who we are. And we saw that citizens of the kingdom of God are people who know that they are weak and needy. That's really what the first three are are saying. The citizenry of this new kingdom of God are weak and needy. Blessed are the poor, Jesus says. People who know they cannot live up to God's standard. Blessed are they who know this. Who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. They are citizens of this kingdom. People who know that. Then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, people, people who really hate their sin and mourn over their sin. This should describe you and me, brother and sister. For they shall be comforted now in part when Christ comes in full. And he goes on to say, blessed are the meek, people who say, like their Savior, If there's a sacrifice someone needs to make, I'll make that sacrifice. You see, those people who are willing to look weak and needy now will reign and rule when Christ comes again. And Jesus continues to describe you and me in in verse 6 by saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, kingdom citizens yearn for a life that pleases God. Kingdom citizens, people that that are part of God's new kingdom, yearn to please God. True believers are absolutely desperate to please God. 
The movie Castaway is a story of Chuck Nolan, played by Tom Hanks, who is a top engineer for FedEx, if you remember, and becomes stranded on a South Pacific island after a, a horrific plane crash. The day after, when he's washed up on the beach, his only concern greater than the fear of being stranded is his desperate need for water. Do you remember this? He's dying of thirst, literally. After he discovers coconuts falling from the trees around him, Norman frantically attempts to open one. Do you remember this scene? If you do, he, you know he repeatedly tries to throw the coconut again and again and again against a, a rock wall to no avail. It doesn't crack at all. Next, he uses all his strength to pound the coconut on a rock, and he's pounding, 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 but the coconut will not release its liquid. The scene goes on and on as Nolan desperately tries to, to free this liquid, this life-giving liquid from this coconut. Eventually, he does break it open, if you remember, and it, and it cracks open and the water spills out onto the ground. And he raises up one little piece of it and gets a couple drops into his mouth. Jesus uses the metaphor of hunger and thirst to convey a type of desperation that we should have to live a righteous life. Hunger and thirst are, are primal feelings, are desperate feelings when, when you are, are hunger and, and when you're starving and when you're so thirsty you can't even think straight. We should be that desperate to live a life that pleases God. That's what Jesus is saying. Citizens of his kingdom are desperate to live a life that pleases God. And this beatitude challenges each of us, doesn't it? It challenges us to ask that uncomfortable question, are you absolutely frantic to please God? Do you have that type of urgency to live a righteous life? Or has time simply dulled your desire for this? Pastor Kent Hughes asks, Has time blunted your desire, the realities of life taken over, and that delectable hunger ceased? Are you now content to live a life of lesser, limited devotion? He goes on to say, We must never be spiritually satisfied. We must pray each decade of our lives that we will find more thirst for living a life that pleases God. And for many of us, many of us who have been Christians uh, for decades, time does tend to blunt this kind of desperation, doesn't it? You know, when a, when a person becomes a new believer, you see this kind of desperation, this franticness to please God. They're sharing their faith. They're, they're doing acts of mercy. They're, they're involved in the church. They're doing all these things. And unfortunately, sometimes we look at those people and we kind of laugh inside and say, oh, oh, that, that fervor will dull down in time. He'll become like me. Shame on us. We can become so content to live a life of lesser limited devotion, can it? We lose our desperate thirst to please God. 
Years ago, my mother visited a dear friend of hers who was now a seminary professor. They were new Christians in their 20s together, and it had been decades since they had seen each other. They talked about their early days as Christians together. My mother was as animated as ever. And at one point, he leaned back in his chair and looked my mother in her eyes and said, you haven't lost it. And she said, what? And he said, you haven't lost your passion and excitement for Christ. That's what people should say about you and me all the time. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, so whether we're at home or away, meaning all time, make it our aim to please God. Very simple. Other translations use the word goal, aspiration, ambition to please God. The reformers put it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief purpose of man, the purpose of our life is to please God. Or more viscerally, we, offer, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, Romans says. Right? Offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. There's no greater giving of all than a sacrifice, is there? A sacrifice gives everything. And we are to be hungering and thirsting to give it all to please God. Hungering and thirsting to live this righteous life. This holy life. Now in Paul's letters, the word righteousness has to do with justification before God. That's how he uses this word in all of his letters. In my devotions last week, I read Romans 4. And there, Abraham is considered righteous before God because of his belief and trust in him, right? And that trust, it says there, is, was counted as righteousness. Righteousness, justness before God, was imputed to Abraham, given over to Abraham, from, from God's account to Abraham's account. Christ, Christ's righteousness was placed in his account, and we speak of that as the other word, justification. And what is true of Abraham, Paul argues, is true of you and me. If we trust in Christ's perfectly lived life and not our own, if we look to, to Christ's life and what he does and not what we do, if we look to his moral perfection and not our partial perfection, if when we are asked when we get to heaven why we should be let in, we need to be able to say honestly, not because of anything I did, but because all of what Christ did. We will enter glory. We are justified. We are righteous because we trust in Jesus' perfect obedience, not our good works. That's how Paul uses the word predominantly in his letters. But here, the type of righteousness that Jesus is speaking about is not that kind of righteousness. It's not this, this forensic 
given over into your account. You're standing before God. Here, Matthew, the word righteousness is primarily used in his gospel, meaning living a righteous life, living a holy life. He's talking more about the the behavior that comes from this justification, the good works, the deeds, and that is shown in in the Greek sense of this word that's written here. So what Jesus here is saying is a true Christian yearns to behave righteously. They know they've been justified, but they also yearn to live out that justification. A true Christian craves to live an obedient life. A true Christian is desperate to follow in Christ's footsteps. To, to truly heed those words in 419, follow me. The following prayer was found and attributed to a Muslim convert to Christ. What was scribbled there reads, O oh God, I am Musafa the tailor, and I work at the shop of Muhammad. The whole day long I sit and pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. O oh God, you are the needle and I am the thread. I am attached to you and I follow you. When the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and must be cut so it can be put back in the right place. Oh God, help me to follow you wherever you lead me, for I am really only Musafa the tailor, and I work in the shop of Muhammad on the square. Citizens of God's kingdom really want to be attached to the needle. They really want to follow Christ, our needle, wherever he goes. We strain to live a life that pleases him. We hunger and we thirst for a life that is righteous in his sight. Is that the type of primal desire that is familiar to you? Does that describe you today? Do you anguish over obedience? Let me ask you again, do you anguish over being obedient to Christ? Do you say, like Paul did, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. What a wretched man am I. Does that sound like your struggle? If so, praise God. If so, good. These are the words of anyone who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. These are those words. These are the words of a man who is pounding on the shell trying to break it open. These are the words of a believer who is desperate to please God. I was talking to Elder Mark Wolfolk last week and he said this, Before my conversion, I never cared what God thought. Now, what God says haunts me. 
Those are words of a desperate man. That's a powerful way of saying, I hunger and I thirst after a righteous life that pleases God. And if that describes you, Jesus says, you'll eventually be satisfied. If that's your type of life, if that's the way you live your life, you'll eventually be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, notice in your Bible that that it is in the future tense. You shall shall be, you will be. Sure, we, we get glimpses of this type of satisfaction from time to time, don't we? But it's hard to hang on to. Have you ever noticed that? You get glimpses of this. You get shades and foretastes of this type of, of satisfaction. At least, at least I do from time to time. I do when, I, when I'm tending God's flock well. I get that type of satisfaction. Or when I share the gospel with someone. I get that type of satisfaction. Or when I'm a sacrificial husband to my wife. I get that type of satisfaction. Or when I disciple my kids well, I get that type of satisfaction. Or when I absorb some, some hurtful comment and I don't retaliate, I, I get a glimpse of that type of satisfaction. But then my flesh takes over and it doesn't last. But one day, this coconut-like sin nature will be completely broken. Isn't that beautiful? And we'll be able to obey God perfectly, completely, and be totally satisfied. We'll no longer hunger and thirst because we will live that type of life. Doesn't that make you want Jesus to come all the more? Come, Lord Jesus. Next, Jesus says the kingdom citizens are are merciful people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Jesus says. People who live in God's kingdom have hearts that are bent towards mercy, that are bent towards compassion, that are bent towards forgiveness. That, that should describe your heart. And as we meditate on this particular beatitude, I know when I did this week, two reactions begin to, to creep in. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What, what happens to you in your heart when you hear that? Well, in my heart, I can be tempted to make it into a work, right? Our flesh says, okay, I'll be merciful so that I receive mercy. That's what my heart does with it. Okay, that's my motivation for mercy. The carrot on the end of the stick. That's, see, that's how our flesh operates. That's how the world works, isn't it? But that's not how God works in his upside-down kingdom. It doesn't work that way. That's not what this is saying. The kingdom does not work on a quid pro quo basis. You do this... Then you get this. That's not how God's kingdom works. We have to constantly preach that part of the gospel to ourselves when this creeps in, don't we? And remember that a gift is not a gift if it is earned. A gift is not a gift if it is earned. 
The gospel always comes wrapped. And you and I can never be merciful enough to earn any type of mercy. But there's a second reaction that happens, maybe not in our hearts. I know that this one happens in my mind. This beatitude gets a little scary once I start thinking about it. Because apparently, the blessing is reserved for the merciful. And I can't speak for you, but I'm not always merciful. I'm not always merciful. In fact, I struggle with mercy to begin with. This is the same type of fear that can overtake us when we are when when we're saying the Lord's prayer, isn't it? Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. What does our mind do with that one? The same thing. Does the amount I'm forgiven depend on the amount I forgive? Boy, if that's true, I'm in trouble. Does my salvation actually depend on my forgiving others? Is that what that is saying? Is that what Jesus is teaching his disciples to think of? Again, that makes the good news not so good. It makes it into a work. Okay, I will forgive so that I'll be forgiven. No, neither of those is true. Both In the Lord's Prayer and here in the Beatitude, it is simply a description of who kingdom citizens are, not something to aspire to. Who they are. Who who people in this kingdom just are naturally. They're merciful people. What's going on in both here and the Lord's Prayer is a description of us, a description of kingdom dwellers. You see, dwellers in the kingdom of God are forgiving people. Why? Because they've been forgiven so much. Dwellers in the kingdom of God are merciful people. Why? Because they have been shown such great mercy. That is what Jesus is trying to teach here. That's what Jesus is trying to teach later on in in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18 with the parable of the unmerciful servant. You know the story. The slave owed the master some in current currency $20 million, an impossible debt. And the slave pleads for his debt to be forgiven, and incredibly, the master forgives the whole debt. And the slave goes out, and he bumps into another slave that happens to owe him three months' wages. And he asks that slave to pay him back and the slave can't pay him back and so he has him jailed until he can pay back his debt. And the master hears about this and calls the first slave back in. And you remember what he says? He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. The point Jesus is making is, is just crystal clear, right? Mercy properly understood begets mercy. Let me say that again. Mercy that you're shown properly processed 
both in mind and heart, properly processed, begets mercy. People who belong to the kingdom of God are transformed into merciful people because of the incredible mercy they have been shown. There's an ancient Asian legend that tells of a young man who became involved with ruffians in the village who persuaded him to join them in robbing his father's house. After the robbery was over, his friends fled with the stolen treasure and left him to face the guilt and crime all alone. The young man was desperate. He was deserted by his friends. He had betrayed the trust of his father. But his greatest crime was that he had brought public dishonor to the family name. And in a culture where ancestors were worshipped and family integrity is a sacred trust, this was the worst wrong of all. Broken and deeply repentant, he went to his father and begged his forgiveness. Graciously, his father forgave. The father called all the members of the family together to celebrate this reconciliation and the return of his son. When all had joined the banquet to the fullest, the father stood and lifted up his cup of rice wine and gave a toast and all drank. But as soon as the son finished drinking, he grabbed his throat and died across the table, lifeless. The son had been poisoned. The father, with ceremonial dignity, nodded to the guests. And each guest knowingly bowed to the father as they silently left the banquet hall. All was put right now. The son had paid the price for his pardon. The family's honor and integrity had been restored. That's how it works in the world. You pay your own debt. How different our Heavenly Father is. He gave us everything. He gave us life. He gave us companionship. He gave us a perfect garden to work and enjoy and and have the fruits of. And we, the collective human race, have robbed and fled our Father's house. We have selfishly thumbed our nose at Him ever since. But what did our Father do? He didn't plan our demise. He planned our redemption. He didn't demand that we pay. He deemed to pay the debt himself. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. That is the good news. That's why we call it good news. God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and lived the perfect life under the law. And he died a substitutionary death for you and me on the cross. Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty, the wages of sin, is death. The wages, how you get paid for sin, the spiritual law is, how you get paid for it, is death. And Jesus mercifully took that penalty. He came and he drank the poison that we should rightfully drink. And it was Christ, not us, who lay lifeless on that cross. And it was God himself who paid the death price 
for our sins. And when he rose from the dead three days later, that resurrection was so powerful that like, like in the wake of a super tanker, little dinghies get, get caught up in that wake and are pulled along as we are pulled along by Christ's powerful resurrection into eternity. Has that great mercy had an impact on you? Has that great act of mercy actually changed you from the inside out? Has that truth that Christ paid your death debt transformed the way you act, the way you think, the way you behave? Have you been changed into a merciful person because of God's great mercy? Because this beatitude is not something that we aspire to. I think we've talked about that. It's not a goal for us. But it is a litmus test for us, isn't it? There is an acid test here. The Apostle John tells us in his first epistle, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth, he says. We can and should look at our lives, examine our lives, to see if we've been transformed into merciful people. Kent Hughes writes, If we remain callous or passive to human need and refuse to do anything about it, We need to take a good, long look at ourselves to see if we're really believers. Whereas Pastor Mark Dever has said, if you're not willing to pick up someone who needs a ride to church before worship, I don't know what you mean when you say, I'm a Christian. The grand red-faced test, as my father says, is, have you been changed to become more like your Heavenly Father? Because only those who look like him will receive mercy. Only those who have been changed at the heart level, transformed, as Romans 12 says, will receive mercy in the end. Don Carson is a pastor, professor, and theologian. And with Tim Keller, he actually started the Gospel Coalition. He is also what we colloquially call a pastor's kid. He wrote a book about his father's 50-year ministry from 1933 to 1992 to the people in Quebec called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. I love that. In it, he describes the day-to-day difficulties and persecution that he endured in Quebec in anonymity, pretty much, for 50 years. He writes lovingly lovingly about the death of his father in his book. And he says, When Dad died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no notice in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in Parliament, no notice in the nation. In his hospital room, there was only the quiet hiss of oxygen vainly venting because my dad had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side... Trumpets sounded. Dad won admittance to the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man, 
or a great man, but because he was a forgiven man. Brothers and sisters, allow God's great mercy through Christ to beget mercy in your life. And when the oxygen slowly hisses out of your mouth, you will see God. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I I praise you for what you have done in Christ for us and through him to us. I pray, Spirit, that you will use these words to truly transform us on the inside into merciful people, into people who hunger and thirst to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.